It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hi, this is Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. Today we're going to talk again about Russia's war in Ukraine. We're going to talk in particular about what it means for Western policy, for European security, transatlantic relations and for NATO. We're also going to look ahead to France's elections on Sunday. You depend on the Russian power. You depend on Mr. Putin. You took a loan from a Russian bank. When it comes to Russia, you don't talk to other world leaders. You talk to your banker. He knows perfectly well that I'm a woman who is absolutely and totally free and that I am a patriot because all my life I have defended France and all French people. As the war on Ukraine moves into day 55, the Kremlin has set off a new phase in the East. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky says Russia's large-scale offensive is underway. The battle for Donbass has begun. So I'm delighted to welcome onto the show Gerard Arrault, who is a crisis group trustee and was a career French diplomat. He served in many distinguished positions, including ambassador to the US, to the United Nations, to Israel, as well as director general for political and security affairs and the French Minister of Foreign Affairs. Gerard has enormous experience at the sharp end of dealing with dilemmas very similar to those that Western governments now face in Ukraine. Gerard, Welcome on, really. Thanks so much for joining us. Bonjour, Richard. Good morning, Richard. So today I'd like us to reflect back a bit on the West's relations with Russia over the past few decades, especially with President Putin since he came to power. I'd like to start, though, Gerard, with Ukraine and, and to talk a bit about Western policy, particularly this dilemma of needing to support Ukraine while avoiding an escalation into direct confrontation between Russia and NATO. So the Russian invasion, I think as all our listeners will know, has encountered much stiffer Ukrainian resistance than President Putin appears to have expected over the past few weeks. As we speak, this has led to this uh, shift of focus now to eastern Ukraine, where, you know, as we speak, the latest Russian offensive is underway. Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov 
calls it uh, another phase, a very important moment in the war. Uh, And we'll talk about some of the challenges that this new phase might bring and some of the fresh dilemmas it might pose European and and Western policy more broadly. But perhaps, Gerard, we could start with a, a sort of bigger picture question of your sort of general sense of the scale of changes underway in European policy as a result of Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine over the past two months, the jolt that it's been to European capitals? No, I I do think that the the Russian invasion of Ukraine, in a sense, is a defining moment for for the history of our continent. You know, um, the invasion is also, in a sense, bringing back Europe into history. Uh, Since 1945, uh, Western Europe has been living in a sort of uh, peaceful paradise under the protection of the the U.S. and in the framework of the European Union. You know, the disputes are are solved uh, in the corridors of Brussels. And the continent, which had given to the world two world wars and the genocide, had the impression that they had overcome uh, this violence and they had defined a new way of, of relating uh, with each other. And suddenly, war is back. And it's a major trauma, a major trauma for the countries, for the public opinions. Suddenly, the impression is that we are back to a very tragic history. So uh, I don't know, of course, what will be decided by the Europeans after the war, but it will be a different Europe. You see already that Finland and Sweden are announcing that they will be a candidate to the membership of NATO. It's, it's amazing. You know, really, during the Cold War, uh, neither were members of, of NATO, and suddenly, overnight, uh, because of this offensive or because of this aggression, they, they said, uh, we join NATO. The German Chancellor has announced also that Germany is going to increase substantially his, uh, the, his military budget. Uh, so it's too early to say what will be the future Europe. But it will be certainly a, a different, a different one. And of course, as usual, a lot will depend on the U.S. The U.S. were more or less uh, under under Obama, under Trump, under Biden, were more or less tiptoeing out of Europe to 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 shift their attention to Asia. Uh, really, they are very active in this crisis. Does it mean that the U.S. are back in Europe, or is it only a, a moment? Uh, who will be elected in Washington in 2024. So a lot, a lot of question marks. And we'll come back to, to some of these big questions on, on what the war means for European security, for transatlantic relations. Gerard, could I ask, uh, there's, there have been a sort of steady stream or a fairly steady stream of European leaders meeting with Putin. President Macron met with Putin several times in the build-up to the war. Um, uh, uh, which, which I think you defended him doing that, that it was worth trying to, to, to find a way to avert the war. Recently, the Austrian chancellor met with Putin, said very little reason for hope. I mean, he described the meeting, I think, as tough and, and, and unfriendly. What do you make of this idea of sort of trying to keep lines of communication open to President Putin? I mean, what purpose do those lines of communication, what purpose do you think they serve? You know, it's it's typically the example of the misunderstanding between, uh, I should say, the diplomats and the citizen. Of course, the citizen considers and is right that Putin is the aggressor, 
that the Russian army has been responsible not only of devastating Ukraine, but also of committing uh, war crimes and maybe crimes against the humanity. So it's quite normal that the men in the street, uh, the citizen believes that we have to punish uh, Putin, that we shouldn't talk to Putin. You know, really to quote the Polish prime minister, you don't talk to Hitler. The problem is that the diplomat and uh, Emmanuel Macron has been, in a sense, reacting uh, as a diplomat, is that we know that if there is a peace agreement, and we need a peace agreement because uh, Ukraine is suffering, Ukraine is devastated, uh, this peace agreement will be negotiated with Putin. Uh, so it means that uh, keeping a channel open to Putin, you know, is totally indispensable uh, to try to not to convince him, but really to feel uh, the moment when uh, possibly he, he has himself reached the conclusion that he should, he should go to an agreement. And that's quite a challenge for a political leader, you know, to do something as unpopular to talk with Putin. But I think it's, it's quite necessary. So that's the, 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 the work of head of state. Emmanuel Macron has to keep a, a, an open channel to Putin. And he does it, by the way, in close cooperation with Zelensky. Uh, you know, really informs Zelensky and, uh, before and after his phone calls. Having said that, I think for now, for at least 10 days, uh, Macron, who was at his 19th conversation with Putin on the phone, has not called Putin. And uh, because basically he has concluded that for the moment, nothing is possible. But I suppose that uh, really uh, down the road, at another moment of the war, he may call Putin. And one of the, the reasons that people float for having these channels of communication is to, to signal clearly, not just in public, but also directly, as you say, the person who, who makes the decisions in Russia, what NATO's red lines are, the, the Article 5 commitment to, to defend NATO member states. How much does that factor into Putin's calculations? You know, to be frank, if you had asked me uh, the 20th of February whether Putin was going to invade Ukraine, I would have said, oh, no way. And, and he did it. Uh, so now if you ask me whether the Russians are going to cross the red line and are going in a way or in another attack uh, a member of NATO, I would say also no way. But uh, now we... We know that things, the rationality of, of Vladimir Putin is maybe different from ours. And on, on the top of that, you may also have incidents. You know, really, it's a war, and uh, so things may happen, and especially because weapons are uh, conveyed uh, from Poland and Slovakia uh, to, to Ukraine. So let's think that there is a, 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 a you know Russian planes trying to destroy convoys coming from Slovakia and Poland. We could have incidents, but I do think that on the Russian side they have understood that uh, NATO will uh, uh, implement the Article Five, that we will defend the other NATO members if they are attacked. You know, NATO, the Americans, but also other NATO members have deployed forces in Eastern Europe. You know, the French are in Romania, for instance. So let's suppose that there is a minimum of shared rationality. I think that the Russians know that they shouldn't play with that. And you mentioned the weapons supplies from the West. Obviously, that's been a centerpiece of the Western response to uh, the, the Russia's invasion. Where do you think 
Western governments should sort of draw the line in what they give Ukraine? I mean, where does supplying weapons run too high a risk of escalation? Is it the fighter jets? Uh, There's the idea that arms that need Western trainers in Ukraine may be more difficult because that might uh, entail trainers from NATO countries getting killed or getting injured, and again, running high risks of escalation. But is there a clear line? I mean, has NATO, broadly speaking, got this right? No, of course, there is no, there is no clear line. And, but before even the, you know, the question of which weapons to transfer, there is also, I think, the question of the principle of sending weapons, you know, really, uh, because there are people who say that we are prolonging the war. Uh, that we are prolonging the sufferings of Ukraine by by sending by sending weapons, and so it's a political choice say, saying Ukraine has its own agency. Ukraine wants to defend itself, so there is no reason not to respond to the request of Ukraine. And uh, but and our objective also, in a sense, should be peace, which means to reach the because Ukraine can't win the war. You know, some people say, and uh, and I understand it. They said, "Oh, we are going to defeat the, uh, the to defeat the Russians." No, you know, we are, Ukraine is not able to defeat the Russians, which would mean uh, really basically to retake the Donbas and why not Crimea? But we sh- Ukraine should be able to show that to Russia that actually negotiation is is necessary. Unfortunately, it means also that Putin has to be able to say, to claim victory. So, uh, so that's a very difficult, a very difficult balance. Uh, we should give, uh, to Ukraine the means to defend itself, but also we, and it's Ukraine to decide, of course, what, what it wants, but we should allow the Ukrainians to reach a compromise as soon as possible to put an end to these sufferings. Uh, and of course, there is no clear answer saying planes, not planes, uh, tanks or, or not tanks. You know, really, it's a political assessment. Unfortunately, I, I really the conclusion that our head of states are, and I, I understand them, uh, are drawing from what is happening is that there is an escalation. You know, we are sending more and more uh, substantial weaponry. You know, it was a munition uh, uh, recently, and now, little by little, we are sending more lethal, more uh, more important weapon systems. So, so that's something which has to be carefully assessed. Uh, there is an escalation also on our side, uh, but let's keep in mind that our objective is as soon as possible a, a peace agreement. And what do you make of the argument that Western governments stop supplying Ukraine with ammunitions and weapons, presumably leading to deficiencies uh, for Ukraine, potentially enabling? We don't really know what the state of the Russian army is and the, and the weapons that the Russian army can, can, can now muster, the degree of morale within its ranks and all these other questions. But let's say that this latest offensive is more effective than previous offensives have been. I mean, there's the, the terrain is very different. It may favour the Russians more than fighting around the cities that, that's been taking place previously. And the non-supply of weaponry, of ammunition to Ukraine, leads Russia to make further offensives. Does that potentially not put a settlement further out of reach? Because, again, if you're trying to help Ukraine get to a settlement that it can accept, that Zelensky can sell at home, which he's also going to have to do, um, that requires allowing Zelensky to hold the line against this latest offensive in particular. So is there a danger of going too far the other way, of not supplying enough? 
You're perfectly right, Richard. And we, we have done it so far. You know, really, we should uh, respond to the Ukrainian request and uh, with the goal of preventing Russia basically to win the war. You know, an undisputed uh, a victory, Russian victory, will be a disaster not only to Ukraine, but also to the rest of Europe. You know, it will show that aggression pays. Uh, so, of course, we should give the Ukrainian army uh, the means, you know, to, to resist the Russian offensive. Uh, it, it, it's very clear. So that's really, uh, that shows, you know, what I said, what, what you just said, how delicate is the balance, you know, really how far are we going to go uh, in terms of supplying weapons? The Americans have opposed the transfer of MiG-29, Polish MiG-29. Uh, I think the French were reluctant to send tanks uh, a few weeks ago, but now actually tanks are going to be transferred, if I understand, from Slovakia. Uh, so as I have said, there there is a sort of escalation we should be aware of it. But really, frankly, so far, I think that uh, the Americans and Europeans, you know, have managed the crisis pretty well uh, in avoiding, uh, inflaming uh, uh, the, you know, the, the rhetoric, uh, for instance, on, on, on the nuclear, on nuclear issues. You remember that Putin has put the, the Russian nuclear apparatus in a sort of high emergency status. Uh, the Americans did nothing, didn't react, which was the right thing to do. Uh, so there is, I think, in, in Washington, uh, but also in other European countries, I think there is a sort of uh, a will to carefully manage uh, uh, the crisis so we avoid, on one side, uh, the defeat of Ukraine, the collapse of Ukraine, but the other, and the other side, also, we are not engaged into a, a deadly confrontation, escalation with Russia. And on the rhetoric, I mean, President Biden made that statement at the end of his speech in Poland at the end of March, basically saying that Putin can't stay in office. I mean, his officials, administration officials then walked that back, saying US policy wasn't regime change. But there has been plenty of talk in Western capitals about Putin potentially going, plenty of talk about him being a war criminal. Uh, Butcher, I mean, what do you make of that? Well, frankly, that's a debate between the, the Western allies. You know, really, um, it's it's also linked, I guess, to um, the, the national genius of each country. Uh, the Americans need to describe any conflict in moral terms. You know, that's that really uh, they don't want to 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 see or to say that actually they have they are they are calculating in geopolitical terms like anybody. They need a cloak of decency over what they are doing. And, and again, when I'm saying that, it's not a question of, uh, of uh, criticizing the U.S. That's the way the country, in a very sincere way, is doing. So with Putin, we have seen on the American side this escalation of words, butcher, war criminal, and so on. Uh, in Europe, I think it's really maybe we are more frank and simply we know that we will have to negotiate with Putin at the end of the day. Uh, so it doesn't help if we want to negotiate with somebody to say that he's a war criminal or to say that he's a butcher. But there is also, I think, an element of consistency. Uh, if you say that Putin is Hitler, uh, what are you going to say the day that you are going to negotiate with Putin? It doesn't make any sense. And on the question of war crimes themselves, I mean, you'll have evidence of horrific 
uh, abuses in, in areas captured back from Russian soldiers. There was this Kiev suburb of, of Bucha, but, but other places as well. Plus, of course, the, the destruction, uh, you know, which is ongoing of, of Mariupol, all too familiar from Russian operations elsewhere. I mean, how, how do you sort of as a, as a, as a diplomat or as a, as, a, as a leader strike the right balance in that it's unrealistic to expect that Putin will face trial anytime soon, either for the uh, violation of Ukrainian sovereignty and for the invasion or for some of the things that Russian forces have done. But at the same time, you need to condemn those atrocities and keep the door open for accountability if the opportunity presents itself at some point in the future. Yes, it's a, it's a very difficult, very difficult balance. First, I should I should say that it seems obvious to me, at least, that even if there is a peace agreement between Ukraine and Russia, uh, really the relationship between U- Europe, between the US and with Russia won't be the same. Uh, we are going to enter a new Cold War. It's very, very clear. And yeah, for instance, the idea of reducing the uh, dependence of Europe to uh, Russian gas and oil even if there is an agreement tomorrow, I think that we will uh, reduce this dependence. And I'm not sure that we will lift all the sanctions. So there will be a Cold War. And I think an element of this Cold War uh, will be the investigations which have been launched uh, uh, on the war crimes uh, and maybe crimes against humanity, uh, which have been launched not only by the Ukrainians, but I think the International uh, Criminal Court, uh, also, the, actually, the, for the French courts and I guess other European courts, and uh, and the investigation will go on. And in our background, uh, there will be also this legal uh, this legal aspect, which will make our relationship extremely difficult. Uh, so that's the first part. The second part is, um, you know, in the debate that we will have with our own public opinion. I think we should be able also to tell them in terms of morality uh, that, you know, stopping a war is, is quite moral. You know, really, so between the, the demand, the legitimate demand of punishing Putin and uh, uh, the demand of reaching peace, I think the second one is more important. Uh, uh, so that's, that's difficult to say to the people, but, but we have to have the courage to say, you know, really, war is an abomination and putting an end to a war is an absolute priority and maybe over punishing uh, a criminal. I mean, talking about putting an end to, 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 to the war, I mean, you mentioned the, the, the sanctions and obviously, you know, as, as, uh, France's ambassador to the United Nations, you would have had a lot of experience of different sanctions regimes. You know, in some ways, the sanctions, of course, are are an understandable response. Western governments threatened sanctions. Russia invaded. They have to carry through. Sanctions raise the costs to Russia of its aggression. But at the same time, there's the counter argument, of course, is that they seem quite unlikely to much influence Putin's calculations so far. And traditionally, the record of sanctions in changing countries' core interests or leaders' core interests isn't great. Uh, It's quite easy for leaders to deflect anger at sanctions towards the West, usually. And, of course, the sanctions of the scope that they've currently been implemented basically entail sort of waging economic war on ordinary Russians. Do you think Western capitals have got the, the right balance and 
I mean, do you think the purposes of the sanctions, uh, whether they're aimed at incentivizing an end to the war or more about simply raising its costs and punishing Russia, I mean, do you think that Western capitals have got that balance right? No, I think usually, you know, I'm quite skeptical about sanctions, you know, really. And, uh, you know, I was on the French TV uh, before they were decided, and I was expressing this skepticism by saying they are usually a fig leaf uh, to hide our impotence and to tell our public opinion, you know, we did something. But this time, the sanctions have been quite devastating. I've never, and we have never seen, uh, such strong and uh, really such strong sanctions uh, which are really hurting uh, the Russian economy. Uh, so it's increasing the cost of the aggression. And uh, But at this point, I'm not sure that the Europeans, the European leaders have actually really assessed the cost for themselves. And uh, I see that during the French presidential elections, when suddenly the voters are realizing that the cost of energy has skyrocketed. You know, and uh, so Emmanuel Macron campaigning, yeah, people who are going to him with the bill they have received for the energy. And and we know that the European economy, like the American economy, you know, is a bit fragile uh, because the consequences of, of the COVID. You know, inflation was already there, but now inflation has, has really uh, uh, exploded in, in Europe. So there there is this question, and uh, we... we uh, European countries are also in charge of their own economy. The, there is a second question, which will be, when are we going to leave the sanctions? Because I feel in the West, especially because now Putin is demonized as a war criminal, uh, I feel a strong uh, push to keep the sanctions. And uh, so for the first I think it's very unlikely that there will be a peace agreement between Ukraine and Russia without lifting the sanctions. But second, unfortunately, I fear that there won't be a peace agreement between Russia and uh, and Ukraine, and it could mean that we have really enduring sanctions, that the sanctions remain, and uh, and they are so strong and they are so disruptive of really a lot of our economic life, our financial life, that we could reach on the European and Western side a, a very awkward moment uh, when considering that keeping these sanctions, uh, frankly, is maybe dangerous for our financial system or for, for our, our economy without having good reasons uh, as for the Russian behavior to leave them. And you mentioned the costs for Europe, but there are also, of course, huge costs for other countries who are now struggling to buy not only Ukrainian wheat, for example, because of the war, the Russian blockade, but also struggling to buy Russian commodities, whether it's wheat, fertilizer, oil and gas, of course, because of some of the complications brought about by sanctions. But we'll come to sort of some of the implications for the rest of the world uh, in a moment. I mean, Gerard, if you're thinking of a settlement, and again, first, I think we should make clear that it doesn't seem at the moment that President Putin is interested in this, at least not until he's seen the results of this latest offensive in the East. And, you know, as you say, it's more likely there'll be some sort of uneasy truce, uh, perhaps even some, some sort of cessation of hostilities before anything more serious. But let's say, you know, let's say you imagine a settlement that entails Ukrainian neutrality, in essence, so it's not in NATO. Some agreement 
potentially about arms control or military partnerships, which countries partner with Ukraine's military, for example. You have a process for Donbass that sort of punts the question, essentially something like the Minsk agreements that basically carry on uh, forever in meetings but don't actually go anywhere, that leaves Russia in effective control of big chunks of eastern Ukraine and Crimea, of course, which doesn't really seem to be on the table realistically. So let's say there is a sort of settlement like that, which really entails some quite ugly compromises. In effect, it rewards Putin's aggression. I mean, it gives him, as you said earlier, something to sell at home. He can then go and say, the war was a success. We defended people in Donetsk and Luhansk from, as the Kremlin calls it, the fascist government, but still, in essence, rewards him for the illegal invasion. You know, one thing is to say that the West should take their cue from Zelensky himself, from Ukraine. But how do you see appetite for accepting something like that in Western capitals? Well, I, th- I think, you know, it's, you, you're perfectly right. And, and again, we are back to the question of the public opinion. And we are back also to the question of the different interests of, of the European countries, you know, according to their geography and their and to their history. It's not a surprise that the, the Baltic states and Poland uh, really are very tough. Uh, so, and while other countries, you know, are more, I think, open to, to the question of, of, of compromise. But unfortunately, uh, really, when you look at what is possible and what is not possible, first, what is possible is the fact that Zelensky wants to negotiate. And that's a very important element. And uh, that's an element, actually, of my admiration towards the man. He's not only galvanizing the resistance of his country, but he's also shrewd enough to, to be open to negotiation, to compromise. He has accepted, more or less, the neutrality of his country. So we, we, I think on, the mo- on a lot of issues, we can see the compromises which are rewarding, uh, as you said, the aggressor. But unfortunately, there are issues where I don't see possible compromises, uh, like the Crimea, of course, but also the Donbass, because uh, Russia, in a sense, has, has broken the bridges behind it, uh, behind itself by recognizing the independence of the republic. And on the Ukrainian side, uh, it's always difficult to accept to, to really basically to change its borders, to recognize its, its defeat by losing a province. But I think that after the atrocities which have been discovered, and, and I'm unfortunately quite convinced, which will be discovered in the future. I don't see even Zelensky able, you know, to convince the Ukrainians, uh, basically to accept what will be a defeat. So that's the reason why I think the most likely outcome could be a ceasefire on the, on the military line, you know, or as you say, a truce or at best an armistice. But unfortunately, I think that we are going to have now a sort of frozen or not frozen, you know, uh, conflict uh, between Russia and, and, and Ukraine. And that's the reason why I was, I was talking about enduring sanctions, you know, because if it's the sort of ceasefire with incidents on the line, uh, at, at best a sort of Korean solution, uh, it will be very, very difficult again for, for, for Europeans, for the Western countries to justify uh, the lifting of, of the sanctions. Where do you think the, you, you mentioned uh, the sort of impressive NATO unity uh, uh, in response to 
Russia's invasion. But w- where do you see the greatest challenges to that unity? I mean, around which which policies? Is it around something like what sort of truce to, to, to accept? Is it, is it in other areas? Do you see the unity being tested anytime soon? Let's imagine that uh, we are reaching uh, either through negotiation or simply on the battlefield a sort of uh, uh, sort of ceasefire, official or unofficial ceasefire. And uh, so the question will be, what should be our Russian policy? Uh, what should be our Ukrainian policy also? For instance, if there is a sort of a ceasefire and Ukrainians are asking us the weaponry basically to pursue the war and to, lash, to launch an offensive for uh, retaking uh, the Donbass, what should be our answer? And uh, and on that, I think there will be. Uh, I suspect there will. It will depend, of course, on of, on a lot of circumstances. But there will be different answers. You know, the Poles will say yes. Let's do. Let's give all the weapons to the Ukrainians so they can retake their territory. And after all, in in international law, uh, uh, they have a point. And other countries say let's put an end to this conflict. Let's not fan the flames of the conflict. That would be, you know, uh, a scenario uh, which will divide, I guess, the West. And I'm not sure, actually, on which side will be uh, the U.S. administration, which has been so far, I should say, forceful, but also cautious. There will be also the question of sanctions. If there is no peace agreement, as I've said, are we going to keep these sanctions uh, uh, over and over? Uh, because they have consequences. So the lifting of the sanctions could lead to divisions. Uh, by the way, on the uh, European side, the sanctions have to be renewed every six months. A decision has been taken, has, has to be taken, and the decision has to be taken at unanimity. So it means that if you want to uh, continue the sanctions every six months, you need to have the 27 members agreeing to it. Gerard, could we uh, back up a little bit and think back over the the past few decades of the West's relations with Russia? I mean, I'm very interested to know what you think of this debate around NATO expansion. I mean, you've seen a lot of this firsthand. I mean, on the one hand, even as far back as the 1990s, you had people, I think even the current CIA director, Bill Burns, talks about this in his memoir, recognising the sort of depth of Russian anger and disappointment at NATO's expansion, the threat that they saw it as, that they saw it posed. And you fast forward to 2008, the Bucharest summit where NATO welcomed Ukraine and Georgia's aspirations to be part of NATO, even though I think at the time France, as well as Germany, maybe the UK, were less enthusiastic. Then, of course, on the other hand, there's the argument which you'll be very familiar with that many countries in Eastern Europe on Russia's periphery wanted to join and they wanted to join for very good reasons. I mean, you can see exactly now why countries want to be part of NATO. It's playing out in Ukraine. So again, you know, this isn't in any way to argue that NATO is responsible for a war that in the end hinges clearly on decisions made in Moscow. But in hindsight, might you revisit some of those decisions about NATO expansion? You know, I think at the end of the First World War, uh, somebody was arguing in front of Clemenceau, the French prime minister, tell, you know, trying to argue that Germany was not responsible of the war. And Clemenceau answered, you know, at the end of the day, Belgium didn't invade Germany. So Ukraine didn't invade Russia. So, of course, you know, uh, opportunities were missed. 
mistakes were, were, were committed uh, uh, down the road. You know, I do remember, I was the negotiator of the first enlargement of NATO. And, uh, and I do remember that at, uh, at 3 a.m., you know, during one of the negotiations, I, I remember I said, you know, after all, if Poland wants to join NATO, it's against Russia. And all my colleagues immediately were screaming, saying, oh, no way, you know, NATO is a defensive alliance, is stabilizing the security of Europe. They were uh, nearly uh, arguing that Russia should be grateful to NATO uh, for, for enlarging, you know. So, and I do remember in Paris, we were torn apart between the knowledge that actually Russia didn't like it, but also we had, we considered, and it would be sound weird coming from diplomats and French diplomats, but that we, we had a moral duty also uh, to bring back these uh, European countries which had been through a no-full uh, recent history, you know, really think of Poland, you know, really. So there, yes, uh, seen from Moscow, uh, enlarging NATO was certainly um, an aggressive move or a negative move, uh, because the Russians, uh, it's very clear that they considered NATO was an hostile uh, alliance, whatever we were saying. You know, I'm used to say when I was in Washington, I was telling the Americans, you know, try to imagine an alliance, you know, between China and Mexico uh, with a Chinese headquarter in Mexico City. What would be your reaction? You know, really? And uh, so... Uh, I, so again, I, I, you have always, as we say in French, to put yourself in the shoes of the other side. Uh, seen from Moscow, it was an aggressive move, but I think that we sh- basically, I think we should have done it. And as you said, what is happening right now is, is a clear evidence of that. I think the real uh, mistake was committed, uh, in 2008. And, uh, and I was actually in the summit in Bucharest, in the room where uh, uh, Chancellor Merkel and President Sarkozy were arguing against George W. Bush on the issue of Ukrainian membership. Uh, it was really, it was a tough meeting. And after that, there was a meeting between head of states alone uh, to reach a compromise on the wording. And as usual, you know, compromise means that we couldn't say no to the Americans uh, so at the end of the day, when you look the wording of the two, uh, 2008 uh, pledge, actually for, for the French, the Germans, not the British, the British were more on the side of the Americans. The French and the Germans, we, we could argue that actually Ukraine was not going to join NATO. And uh, since 2008, there was not any really move to, to, to get Ukraine closer to NATO. It's, I think it's more, and, and the Russians knew it, you know, really, of course they didn't like it, but they knew it. They knew, uh, but uh, uh, I think there, there was another mistake when the European Union offered to, uh, to Ukraine, uh, you know, an association agreement. Actually, it sounds like a sort of uh, trade agreement, economic agreement, you know, uh, but actually, it has the consequences to anchor very firmly uh, Ukraine in the West. Uh, what, because, you know, Ukraine was supposed to adopt thousands of EU regulations. It was, in a sense, also cutting Ukraine from Russia in economic terms. And, uh, I, and it was obviously interpreted by the Russians as uh, uh, we are taking over Ukraine. Uh, so we should have been maybe more cautious 
in our approach of our relationship uh, with, uh, I think, with, with Ukraine. Uh, but, you know, in history, mistakes are always committed. It doesn't justify uh, the invasion of Ukraine. So let's the historians argue for the next 20 years uh, about why we reached this incredible point of Russia invading Ukraine. And maybe just one other question that historians can argue about over the next 20 years um, and, and something else that you were very involved in this time at the UN Security Council, which was the uh, the Libya intervention. I mean, I wonder how pivotal you see that in defining the, the West's relations with Russia. I mean, this was when it wasn't Putin who was president, it was Dmitry Medvedev. And according to the Russian interpretation of what happened, Russia agreed to the Security Council mandate providing for the protection of civilians in Libya. That was used by NATO to overthrow Gaddafi. I mean, it's not just the Russians that argue this. Of course, many other countries were scarred by the Libya experience. Um, but apparently it's something that Putin dwells on a lot. According to different accounts, he's watched several times this very gruesome video of Gaddafi being killed uh, and, and Gaddafi's downfall, people argue, really made an impression. You know, this was a leader that gave up his nuclear program, tried to cooperate with the West and look what happened to him. I mean, how much do you see NATO's intervention in Libya as sort of a, a crucial moment in informing Putin's views about sort of how he should be dealing with the West? You know, I was a French negotiator of the resolution 1973, and uh, I think it was uh, a pivotal moment, not only for Russia, but I think for a lot of uh, countries. Uh, because after uh, the death of Gaddafi, uh, to be frank, I would be, I was uh, submitted uh, to f uh, really a lot of criticisms coming from a lot of of countries, of members of the United Nations, you know, and they were led usually by Brazil. Brazil was, you know, really very active, you know, organized meetings. And usually I was invited and I was, you know, really submitted to a, a carpet bombing by, uh, by all the member states. And India also, you know, actually India was member of the Security Council and abstained, you know, like Russia, like China, really, like Germany, by the way, also. Uh, so I think, you know, you have to, and again, you have to take together uh, the, the Western intervention in Afghanistan, in Iraq, in, uh, uh, in Libya. Um, I'm really, frankly, deeply convinced that... Um, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, there was this unipolar moment of the triumph of the West. And I think we have been victims, and the, the Americans the first ones, uh, victims of a sort of hubris, and also an over-reliance on the military instruments, the sort of militarization of the foreign policy of the West. And basically, we can conclude now that it has been nearly an unmitigated disaster. You know, where is Libya today, uh, Iraq, Afghanistan, and we could go also to the French intervention in the Sahel. So uh, a lot of countries are basically reproaching us uh, uh, what we have done. You know, um, when you look at when you look at the conflict today, 
Uh, you can say, oh, 141 countries voted against Russia in the General Assembly of the UN. But you know that among the abstaining powers, abstaining countries, you had not only China, but India, but South Africa, about Ethiopia, Senegal, Morocco, you know, really the French foreign ministry is studying the press, of course, in the uh, third world countries. And the press, contrary to what we may think, is not so much anti-Russian. In a lot of countries, of course, they don't like what Russia is doing, but they like the fact that Russia is opposing the West. They like the fact that the way, there is a sort of schadenfreude, uh, our German friends will, will say, really, uh, yes, it's bad, it's bad for our economy and so on, but really we like the idea of giving a lesson to the West. So I think it's a, a much wider problem, uh, which is uh, the West has to see itself the way it's seen by other countries, by the rest of the world. You know, the accusation of hypocrisy, double standard, you know, one day at the UN General Assembly, I, I made a speech about the human rights in Cuba. And when I left the room, the Cuban ambassador, who was a perfectly French-speaking ambassador, came to me and said, Gerard, I loved your speech. And when you are making the same speech about Saudi Arabia, please invite me. And of course, he was right. There is a, a Western double standard and, uh, and so on. So I think the West uh, should also... Uh, beyond this uh, feeling of being on the right side in this conflict, maybe to have some soul-searching uh, about uh, its relationship with the rest of the world. And not only for moral reasons, but simply because the balance of power in the world has changed. And uh, the G7 was representing 65% of the world GDP. Now it's representing only 40% of the world GDP. So we will have to take into account also more, I should say, the rest of the world. And Gerard, what do you make of the converse argument that you hear sometimes among American neoconservatives that actually Russia is acting the way it is because the West has been too weak, not too strong, that actually, you know, the West should have been tougher on Russia in 2014, where they'd annexed Crimea, back separatist in Donbass, it should have enforced the red line in Syria. So you know, when Obama said the use of chemical weapons by the Assad regime was a red line, he then should have got more involved, bombed Syria, in essence, when evidence of, of, of Assad using chemical weapons emerged. West shouldn't have left Afghanistan. I mean, it, what do you make of that argument, given the shifts in geopolitical power that you're talking about? No, first, I, I, I really usually I avoid this sort of general argument, because there is no general argument. There is Ukraine, there is Afghanistan, there is Iraq. So every solution, every uh, conflict should be judged on its own merit. Really, Afghanistan, it sounds very, very weird to argue we have been there for 18 years. Uh, uh, we have been there with 150,000 soldiers, and we didn't really reach uh, uh, any peaceful solution. So why uh, staying five years more uh, uh, would be successful. The second element is usually people uh, don't remember uh, the the civilian casualties. And, uh, you know, I, I remember really when looking in the, and again, I'm talking of the US because they are the superpower, but I think it's certainly the same for, for instance, for the French in the Sahel region. When you look at articles, American articles about the war in Iraq, you, at some point, you will have the number of the American soldiers killed, but you never have the number of civilian kills. 
And, uh, and really here in, in Iraq, as you know, the figures is certainly in the dozens of thousands of, of civilians killed, the country devastated and so on. Uh, and, uh, the military instrument, but here I'm only expressing my, my personal uh, belief, should be used with the utmost restraint for self-defense or with a mandate of the UN Security Council. And without a mandate, really in very particular, very particular circumstances. Uh, you know, it's, uh, we sh- really, and, and why? You know, when people are talking about China and the United States, you know, I remind them that in the last 30 years, I don't remember a Chinese military operation, but I can talk of at least 20 U.S. military interventions, you know, really. And uh, I'm, are, you, are we sure that these U.S. military interventions have had positive consequences? Of course, it's a much wider debate. And again, you can't answer in a very general way saying we should have been strong. Really, of course, mistakes have been committed, but uh, opportunities have been missed in a lot of these different conflicts. But each conflict should be judged on its own merit. And I mean, you mentioned uh, military force without a Security Council mandate only in very specific circumstances. I mean, what specific circumstances? Isn't that the core of it? Isn't that the core of the problem? Which yes, circumstances? I, actually, I, 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 I did it because suddenly, of course, I remember I remembered Kosovo. And, and again, I was the French negotiator at NATO for the Kosovo intervention. And really... Um, and that's again going back to this the, the saying uh, it's every uh, situation should be at its on its own merit uh with kosovo as you know uh really it it there was uh, it was a, a country uh, populated by 90% of albanians and and uh, the serbs uh, had refused uh, some peace proposal and uh, were really starting uh, ethnic cleansing campaign, uh, really. So I think you can justify the operation. I, I'm not very comfortable with it myself, uh, but I think you can justify. It would be hard now to imagine a situation like Kosovo, though, right? I mean, that was also a product of a unipolar world. I mean, it's very hard to see Western powers, NATO, for the defence of Kosovo Albanians bombing Serbia. It would be hard to imagine something like that taking place now. Actually, bombing Serbia was, in in a sense, we didn't want to bomb Serbia. I think it was a, a miscalculation of NATO uh, because we, uh, what we did was sending an ultimatum and we were totally convinced that Milosevic would cave in the same way he did in 1995. You remember in 1995 in Bosnia, uh, which led to the NATO force, the, 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 the stabilization force. Uh, in September '95, and and to our total surprise, uh, actually Milosevic didn't cave in, but Milosevic didn't surrender. So NATO was little by little, you know, really uh, brought into, uh, uh, really dragged into uh, this unprepared and and I understand shocking campaign. So we could talk about this all day, but can we just, before we end, come back to some of the the debates about European security that have been affected by Ukraine? And in particular, this debate, because I know it's very close to um, Macron's heart of strategic autonomy. I mean, does the war mean an end to sort of Macron's vision for European security, given that the US has clearly shown a, a much greater commitment under Biden than it did under Trump to its NATO commitments? 
or sort of has it reinforced the idea of European strategic autonomy given German increases that you mentioned earlier in defence spending and given the fact, of course, that we don't know yet who is going to occupy the White House in three years and what their views of NATO are going to be? You know, it has been a theological uh, debate for now for decades and uh, strategic autonomy is the expression used by President Macron, but the French have been fighting for giving the Europeans their the means to act by themselves for, for decades. And I should say, frankly, uh, with minimal results. And uh, because whatever we say, what we are doing was considered uh, as weakening NATO. And that was the worry of our European friends on the East and in the West, you know, really, because uh, in the East, because of their Eastern Europe, in Eastern Europe, because of their tragic history, and we can understand it, Poland, the Baltic states are fiercely, uh, uh, really committed to the American guarantee. For them, NATO, it's the American guarantee period. You know, it's not the French or German or the British one. And, and in Western Europe also, people are seeing their security in Euro-Atlantic terms. They can't imagine, you know, their security uh, dis- really disjointed from Canada and the U.S., you know, really, there is also a sense of common destiny, a common civilization, which is quite strong in Northern Europe. Uh, so it's it has been a long battle. And uh, and again, strategic autonomy by Macron was only the last act of this story. Uh, people don't, re- don't remark, but autonomy is much weaker in French than independence. Uh, if you are autonomous, actually, you are still under the remit of a higher authority. And, uh, but of course, as usual, people really believe that the French had uh, dark goals and they wanted to kill NATO because the French don't like NATO and so on. And the French on their side, of course, the French had, had uh, dark designs. And the dark design of the French was uh, the conviction that NATO was more or less vanishing little by little by the, because the Americans were shifting their attention to the uh, to the east, and because an alliance without an enemy uh, doesn't make really sense. So you remember that Macron had this very bad idea of saying that NATO is brain dead, uh, but now it's over. Uh, really, Vladimir Putin has saved NATO. Vladimir Putin has shown that NATO was a critical element of European security. And this conviction is not going to go away uh, in the coming months or years. So I think that in terms of uh, strategic uh, or European defense, uh, nothing will be possible but in close cooperation with the agreement uh, of NATO. So the, again, the debate is going to shift dramatically uh, uh, towards uh, towards NATO. We are going to see a new life of NATO. And at the same time, everything, of course, will depend in 2024 on who was who will be elected uh, in Washington, D.C. And in some ways, I mean, the, the, Trump obviously showed this, uh, but the French elections in, in a few days' time are, are also showing this, that in, in some ways, NATO, you know, for all its unity at the moment, it has this soft underbelly, which is populism. 
um, which has genuine causes, the, the ones you talked about, the rises in the cost of living, the fact that people feel that they've been left behind, the fact that they feel that they've lost out. But it's also, in some cases, been fueled by Russian disinformation, in some cases, Russian money. So how are you looking ahead to Sunday's vote? Uh, and, you know, if 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 there is an upset, uh, and again, it's very difficult to trust opinion polls given what happened in, in, in the US in 2016 and the UK with Brexit. If there is an upset um, and Marine Le Pen does assume the French presidency, what is that going to mean for the West's Ukraine policy and, and its security arrangements and relations with Russia more broadly? No, first, I, I think um, before going even to the, the result, uh, and uh, again, I, I think the lesson of the campaign is once more uh, to emphasize uh, that France is, is facing a deep cultural, political, uh, social crisis, uh, the same way the, the American societies, the British and, and the other Western societies, maybe with the exception of Germany, uh, are facing. You know, really a substantial number of our citizens are basically they want to toss the table. Uh, if they voted for the far right, it's not because they are really excited by Marine Le Pen. It's simply because they they are against the system and uh, which they consider twisted against their values and their interest. And and things have not improved since 2017, since the election of Macron in 2017. Actually. When you look at the first round of the elections, 55% of the French have voted against the system. And, uh, and we, uh, on the top of that, uh, a relatively high number of abstentions, uh, because the French vote massively in the presidential elections. And this time we had 25% of abstentions, which is very high uh, in French terms. So it's a crisis, which means that even if Macron is elected, uh, uh, really, the crisis will not vanish overnight, uh, and it will face uh, a very, very difficult situation. And uh, and the question is whether it will be able, you know, to overcome the, these these feelings of anger, uh, of resentment, uh, of frustration of our citizens. You know, really. Now, going to 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 Sunday, uh, the polls are showing that Macron may win. But, you know, I went through, uh, I was in Washington in November 2016, uh, and I was shocked by the Brexit uh, result. So, and nobody was expecting a Trump, the victory of Trump. You know, now everybody is saying, oh, I told you so. Uh, but no, uh, it, it's not true. Uh, so I will cross my fingers till uh, 8 p.m. Paris time on Sunday. So let's let's be prudent in our assessment. If she is elected, it will be totally chaotic. First, because she has absolutely no executive experience. And second, and the people around her are, have no executive experience whatsoever either. So, uh, after that, we will go to, uh, to a parliamentary elections in June. And, uh, what will be the result? of these elections because the her, her victory will have will have been a sort of earthquake in the French political life. What will be what will happen? Uh, on the right, the the traditional conservatives are they going to rally uh, uh, behind her? Uh, and and you know that the French have a particular genius for rioting uh, in the streets. And I'm sure that the far left uh, will go to the street to protest. 
So it will be quite chaotic. And for me, frankly, my most, my real worry is not so much about Russia, it's about the European Union. Now, really, the French want to stay in the European Union in a large majority. So our program is officially, we stay in the European Union, but we change the European Union. But changing the European Union so much that actually it's totally unacceptable by the other member states. You know, it's really transforming the European Union in something totally different and much weaker. So what does it mean? What she will do? Uh, is she like Cameron, in a sense, to say, well, I'm obliged to have, for instance, a referendum on the European Union? And to be frank, I and maybe you are going to say that it's French bragging, I don't see the European Union without France. So it's really, it's something... There are explosive uh, uh, consequences, potential explosive consequences. And when uh, Donald Trump came to power, in much the way you describe what a Marine Le Pen in early days of presidency would look like, very chaotic, a lot of people without governing experience. But you did have a sort of what its opponents would call a deep state, but other people would call guardrails or, you know, people with more experience who seemingly over the course of his presidency even though it was quite a wild ride, were able to curb some of his excesses. Do you think you would have something like that that, again, might push a, an inexperienced leader you know, towards moderating positions like the one you talked about on the European Union? Well, first, I think uh, there is another element that the French don't have and the Americans add, which is a very strong checks and balance. And, you know, the U.S. is a federal state, the tribunal, the judges are have, have a real power to stop the executive power, which doesn't exist in our system. And also the fact will be that uh, there was an, a strong opposition in, in Washington, D.C., while in France, uh, as I've said, there will be a totally a political landscape in ruins because the traditional parties have been swept away in the first round of the election. So we are now only the far right and the far left and the center around Macron. So if this center is defeated, what will remain? Uh, so as for what you call the deep state, unfortunately, it's the expression which is used also by Macron. Um, actually, yes, we have a very strong bureaucracy. Uh, really, we are known for that, actually, <laughs> the French. Uh, so the problem is that I... Uh, I don't know what will be the reaction of some members of this deep state. Because, for instance, you know, a lot, a lot of my friends have told me that if she's elected, they will resign. Uh, because, again, it's really victory of Le Pen is, will be, I will call it, to explain it to the Americans, a Trump moment in, his, in France. But actually, it will be much more. Uh, uh, confrontational, controversial than the election of Trump uh, because of what happened in Europe and also in France between 1940 and 1944. And uh, that's a very, very, very strong uh, memory, uh, really. And uh, far-right, when you say far-right in, in Europe, it's really conveying a lot, a lot of, of dark of dark memories. That's the reason why Le Pen is fighting to say that she's not from the far right. Um, so there will be, I'm sure, among a lot of my former colleagues, not only the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, but elsewhere, a lot of really uh, personal problems. Uh, am I going to serve this government? I'm going to serve these people, you know, really. 
So, um, I, you know, really, the jury is out. I really don't know what 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 will happen. You know, really, in the best scenario, uh, she does. She won't have the majority in the parliament. So there will be a government uh, who could, uh, in a sense, reign in uh, her instincts. So we could have political, ongoing political crisis, maybe new parliamentary elections in one year. I don't know, you know, really. No, I think it would be chaotic. And Gerard, maybe one very last question. And it's easy to come away at the moment with the sense that we're living in a time that's moving very, very quickly, that there's a lot happening. A lot of it is moving in the wrong direction. A lot of structural changes afoot. We talked about some of them in in the West, Trump's election, Brexit, obviously, globally, there's the pandemic, Ukraine war. History in some ways seems to have its foot on the gas. But then if you sort of reflect back to the 2000s, there was a lot happening then as well. The 9-11 attacks, the the complete reorientation of US uh, foreign policy the Iraq war, the other post 9-11 wars, also an enormous amount happening. If you go back to the 1990s, again, you had the Balkans collapsing, Somalia, the Rwandan genocide. So if you look back at the arc of your time, really at at the forefront of French foreign policy of international relations, do you get the sense that things are actually moving more quickly now and that things are headed in a more dangerous direction? Or is that a, a perception that's more shaped by where you sit? Well, first, I think that what we have been, uh, really, we have been convinced, or we are convinced that the past was better, maybe, because actually uh, the West was protected uh, from war. It, it, It was better for us, in other words. It was better for us, exactly. It was better, much better for us, and we were running the show. Uh, so, uh, so now, you know, really having a war in Ukraine, uh, sounds and looks totally awful for us. But, you know, there have been wars in a lot of other parts of the, of, of the world, uh, really. Uh, so, so that's the first point. You know, really, uh, the West is discovering that actually the world is, is, is tough, not only for the rest of the world, but also for the West. And as I have said, we are less powerful than, than we were. The second, the second one, the transition, I think we, yes, we are out, we are going out of the neoliberal era, uh, that which started in 1980s. Uh, really, uh, borders are bad, uh, free trade is good, uh, really, uh, that was the market is the king and, and let's make money. Uh, it's over. You know, basically, our citizens are rebelling against it, and we see, a little by little, a fragmentation of the world. Borders are bad, and, you know, frankly, sanctions are part of it. You know, really, sanctions are part of it. The COVID has shown also it was not that good to depend only on on free trade uh, for the vaccines, for we see the disruption of the chains of supply, the way it has consequences on our economy. Uh, and the people suddenly people say are calling for less inequality, are calling for the state to intervene more forcefully in the management of the economy. So I don't know what will be the future, uh, but obviously, as the Americans love to say, the paradigm is shifting and we are, we are going to a, a different world. You know, yesterday I was listening to a, a, a press event with the former French Prime Minister Dominique de Villepin. And, uh, you know, he, he said something which I found was interesting. He said, you know, the last 40 years, 
the issue was economy, economy, economy. And he was saying, right now, we are entering a political world. That political issues, actually, uh, and he was speaking for the West, political issues are going to dominate our agenda. Domestic political issues, since our political system actually is criticized and attacked, but also external political issues, because we are not uh, in a position anymore to impose our will. So it means that we, are, we have to negotiate, in a sense, permanently, uh, what will be uh, uh, the political balance, the future political balance of the world. Gerard, thank you so much for coming on. It was a tour de force. No, thank you very, very much. You know, really, it was a pleasure, Richard. Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. You can find all of our work on our website, crisisgroup.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at Crisis Group. Thanks, of course, to our producers, Sab Mednick, Kevin Murphy and Finn Johnson. And thanks, of course, to all of you, our listeners. Please do get in touch with us, podcast at crisisgroup.org. If you have any suggestions, feel free to leave us a question or comment. If you like the show, give us a positive rating or review. And I hope you'll join us again next week. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.